0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paws, and strength to our lives. Help us by your spirit so to hear your word, that we may be equipped for every good work, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Won't you please take your seats. In the book of James, in the New Testament, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James goes on to say, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perhaps you have heard it said by one famous person or another that our life is the sum total of the choices that we have made. Our lives on one level are all a test, and our lives are a sum total of the tests that we have endured. Our faith is the sum total of the tests that we have endured as Christians. In the New Testament, Abraham is considered to be a model of faith, Even the father of faith, in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 we read that we are to understand that those who have faith are children of Abraham. He is a model of faith because he not only heard God's promise, but he believed God's promise and he staked his whole life on that promise. If you need a previously on the life of Abraham, I'll give it to you. If you don't, just click recap over here and uh, you can fast forward to the beginning of this episode. God chose a man who was a nomad who could not have children and promised him a land to make him a great nation and to bless the whole world through him. As we go through the story and the life of Abraham, we are dealing in the promises of God. However, a word of caution is helpful because we can often be too quick to move from what God promised to Abraham to a place where we ask what God has promised us. And we would do well to think slowly about exactly what it is that God has promised us. Is it to live a victorious life or to have good things in this life? Is the promise related to this world or to the world to come or both? Is God's promise material or spiritual? And what about the matter of present or future? All of these questions contribute to understanding what it is that God has promised us. But what we do know with certainty because of what the New Testament tells us is that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. All God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. And that praise is to be given to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ so that our lives are lived out before the promise of God. And like Abraham, we are called to trust and rely and depend upon his promise. In short, God made a promise, and we are called to respond in faith to that promise. Now that faith, faith, during the course of our lifetime is a faith that will be tested over and over again, Our faith is not static. It is living and relational. It must grow. And one of the ways that it grows is through the many decisions that we make in our lives and the many trials that we face. And so as we dive into Genesis 13 and 14, we are diving into a series of tests that Abraham endures during the course of his life. In chapter 13, the test is on the home front, in the family. In chapter 14, it's with the superpowers of the day. So let's walk through this text and look at the different tests, uh, choices that Abraham is left to make. Test number one. In the opening verses of chapter 13, he's met with the test of failure. Christian faith frequently has to deal with failure. In chapter 12, Abraham went down to Egypt. He lied about his wife, Sarai. He said that she was his sister. She got taken into Pharaoh's uh, home. She was to be married to Pharaoh. And God intervenes. And Abraham, in chapter 13, is coming off the back of that failure. What will he do in the response to this failure that he has just gone through? Well he returns look at verse 3 from the Negev he went from the place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and I where his tent had been earlier where he had first built an altar and there it was that Abraham called on the name of the Lord true Christian faith always has a remedy for failure it is the mercy and the forgiveness of God through the death of Jesus Christ True faith will always be restored because God built in grace and mercy and atonement and forgiveness. And the thing is that knowing what to do when you fail is a very important lesson when it comes to the life of faith. Because each one of us is sure to fail time and time again. What we see in the life of Abraham is that God has provided for all our failures. What Abraham does is not to run away from God. He doesn't hide like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. He goes back to the promise. He returns to the place where he had pitched his tent, to the altar that he had built before, and there once again he calls upon the name of the Lord. Hear this this morning. Faith, true faith, when it has to deal in failure, always returns to the Lord. It doesn't run away from God. And we should note that chapter 13 begins and ends with Abraham at an altar. I think that uh, the author is calling to our attention uh, the space that Abraham finds himself in during these tests. His ability to make right decisions is because he is no longer relying upon his own cunning and strength and intelligence like he did back in chapter 12, but now, book ended in verse 4 and verse 18, he is relying and trusting and depending upon the God who has revealed himself to be trustworthy and reliable and dependable who although Abraham puts God's promise in jeopardy in Egypt God will not let his promise fail and so the Lord is very much in Abraham's thinking throughout this chapter but the first thing that we notice is that when we deal in failure we need to return to the Lord we need to come back to the cross God always welcomes sinners home He pursues the lost sheep. He does that with each one of us. The second test that Abraham has to endure is the test of conflict. Look with me at verse 5, and particularly conflict because of prosperity and wealth. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. We read back in verse 1 that Abraham had now become very rich, and the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. It sounds like a really great problem to have, doesn't it? I just have so much, I don't know what to do with it. And yet... Wealth and prosperity can be one of the greatest tests that we ever face in this life. Wealth and success will test your faith and it leads to strife within the family business. Quarreling arose, verse 7, amongst Abram's herders and lots. That's the second test and it really leads into the third test which is a test of opportunity and entitlement. Abram takes the lead and seeks peace With Lot and the herdsmen, Abram says to Lot in verse 8, Let's not have quarreling between you and me, between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Uh, Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Abraham declines his right as the senior member of the family. But he also declines his right as the one to whom God has promised the land. Rather than laying claim to what he wants, he defers the decision to Lot and acts in humility and faith. He's prepared to be sacrificial. And so Lot, we're told, makes the decision. He looked around. He saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar. It was well-watered. It looked like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. It looked like the land of Egypt, which is a really interesting little reference because in all likelihood, the first readers of this were the Exodus generation. And so they would have known how wealthy Egypt was. They had firsthand experience of that. And Lot looks around and he looks with his eyes and he says, that place is booming economically. I'm going there. And for just a moment, we think to ourselves, well, hey, what's wrong with that? He's wise. He's shrewd. There's nothing wrong with the pursuit of wealth. He is just making shrewd, cunning business decisions. Wouldn't we all do the same thing? What is it in the text that tells us that Lot made a bad decision? Well, look at how it's bracketed. Verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of verse 13, now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Lot looked at what he could see, not by faith, but by sight. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gain. And so Lot reached out and he took it. Now, obviously, the narrator breaks in and twice makes these references to Sodom and Gomorrah to let us know that Lot was basically exchanging faithfulness for wealth, but also notice that there is a a, a real uh, mirroring of what happens back in Genesis 3, when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable, and so she took it. Abraham, on the other hand, chooses on the basis of what God had promised and trusts that God will look after him, that he doesn't have to look after himself. One decision will lead to trouble, the other decision will lead to blessing. The test of opportunity rears its head, and what will you do? Abraham, who seems to really come off second best, uh, in actual actual fact is better off. And the Lord uh, intervenes very quickly as he speaks to Abram in verse 14. And the Lord says to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around where you are, to the north and to the south and the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever." Notice how Lot looks with his eyes and sees. Notice how the Lord tells Abram to look. Not just with his eyes, but with the eyes of faith. And as he looks around and surveys all this land, uh, God levels up his promise and says, All this land that you see, as far as the eye can see, that is for your offspring. And not only that, Abraham, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. When Abraham is tested with opportunity and is left with a choice to make, not only does he defer, not only does he say, uh, recognize this principle that the first will be last and the last will be first, not only does he embody, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, but he rests on the promise of God for him and for his future. Abraham invites Lot to make the decision in spite of the fact that God had promised the land to him. And through this, again, we see how it was that Abram walked by faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 14 tells us that we are to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so let me ask you this morning, what is it that governs your behavior? Abram lives by what is not seen. He lives by the word of God and the promises of God. Not by what the world has to offer with its comfort or its ease or its success or what we can see only with our physical eyes. We move into chapter 14 then, and I think that uh, the, the story in chapter 14 is really reinforcing everything that we've already seen in chapter 13, but there's a couple of new um, tests that come Abram's way. Uh, the fourth test that he faces is really a test of vengeance. Uh, chapter 14 begins with the description of an incursion of four kings. I joked with Susan before the reading uh, that she had to read all their names, and I could just refer to them as the kings, so I've opted for that one. Uh, The four kings go up against the five kings. Uh, There's a little bit of a rebellion. Uh, King Cheddar, as I have affectionately come to call him and know him this week, decides he will have none of that. He goes back in. He puts down the rebellion that is taking place. And in the process, we read in verse 12 that they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now, Abram was left with a choice. What would he do? Uh, He could have sat back and thought to himself, well, didn't Lot get what he deserved? I mean, after all, we read in chapter 13 that when Lot looked at the land, he said, I'll go dwell amongst the cities. Uh, When we discover him in chapter 14, he was living in the city of Sodom. Uh, Lot's story arc is fascinating because when we meet him again uh, in chapters 18 and 19, he's actually sitting at the city gate. He seems to be an elder in the city of Sodom. uh, And his story ends quite horrifically uh, in Genesis 19 and 20. Uh, But that aside, Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham doesn't uh, feel vindicated by Lot being carried off. He does what any self-respecting 75 year old man would do. He gathers all of his fighting men and he charges off into battle and he chases them through the first mention of the tar heels and the bitumen pits in chapter 14 in the Bible and he goes and defeats the kings and just like that, it's done. We get none of his tactics except that he fought them at night and that was it and the Lord gave him the victory. The narrator is a lot more interested in what happens after the events of the little battle that takes place with Abram. Uh, the thing though is that Abram recognizes, and the narrator makes the point that this was Abram's nephew Lot. This was part of the family of promise. And so rather than casting him inside and feeling vindicated, Abram goes out and rescues him. What will you do when you are left with the test? Of vengeance and vindication will you seek grace and mercy and familial restoration uh, the fifth test then crops up uh, after this whole little event takes place and it's a test of success how will you deal with success in your life after Abraham wins instead of uh, patting himself on the back and seeking the praise and glory that victory at war brings He acknowledges that the Lord was the one who gave him the victory. Uh, We meet uh, this strange, enigmatic figure, Melchizedek. And Abram, we're told at the end of verse 20, uh, gives him a tenth of everything. Here is uh, the king priest of God Most High in the city of peace. And rather than grabbing for himself the success of the battle he recognizes that it has come from the hand of the Lord. This was his way of showing that his trust was in the Lord and not in himself, that everything that he had came from the hand of God. But it doesn't stop there because we meet a sixth test, and that is the test of wanting it all now. Uh, Chapters 13 and 14 uh, really are a comparison, a set of comparisons, a comparison between Abraham and Lot, a comparison between this king Melchizedek and this king of Sodom. Abraham returns from uh, defeating Kedaloamar. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out and brings bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. The king of Sodom also comes out in verse 21 and says to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods. In other words, here's an opportunity, Abram, for you to get rich again, time and time again. You're already wealthy, well here, now you can have more. Uh, The path that Melchizedek offered was a path of continuing to wait and trust on the Lord. Abraham didn't have to give Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He chose to give Melchizedek a tenth of everything because he recognized him as the king priest of God Most High. The The one God, the one true God who had revealed himself to Abraham and who had given him the victory. Well, this king of Sodom says... Hey, Abraham, you can have it all now. The king of Sodom represents a worldly-based set of human values and human success and offers him immediate payments. And look at what Abraham says to the king. He says that Abraham says to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high. So there's that reference again to God most high. Uh, From Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High. Somewhere along the way, Abraham has sworn an oath. We don't know when he did that, but he does it. And here's the oath that he swore, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, Let them have their share. The king of Sodom's uh, offer looks quite reasonable, but the deal is so subtle that it's easy to miss it. The king of Salem says to Abram, here is the blessing from the Lord, but you have to wait. The king of Sodom says, you can have it all now. It sounds so similar to when the devil took Jesus very high onto the mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said, all this I give to you if you will bow down and worship me. All this I will give to you if you don't go to the cross. All this I will give to you right now, and you will never have to endure any suffering in this life. But what was it that governed Abram? He looked to God for the victory. He was willing to wait. He did not have to have it all right now. He saw that God had granted him the success and that he didn't need to grab. He doesn't have to have it on anyone else's terms except for the Lord. I think it's also interesting, and just as an aside application, that Abraham had predetermined his decision. You know, there are many things that we will face in this life, many choices that we will have to make. But before Abraham had even gotten to this point, he had already decided what it was that he was going to do. He would accept nothing from anyone except for the Lord so that no one could say, I made Abram rich. So that no one could say that I am the one who brought about blessing in Abram's life. He would only let the Lord do that for him. And it's fascinating when you fast forward to the, to the New Testament. In, in, in Romans chapter 4, we read about how Abram didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but that he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And that little section in Romans 4 is referring specifically to later on in the story when God called Abram to sacrifice Isaac. That little section goes on to say that Abram was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. In other words, Abram had experienced before the Isaac event, God's power to do what he had promised. That as we look back at the life of Abraham, we can see that in Abram's experience, he had come to know That God was faithful and reliable and dependable and trustworthy. And so he could, when he got to that huge event, trust and rely and depend upon the Lord. What we need to understand today is that God has made a promise. And it stands to reason that all of our life is lived out before that promise. Every decision, every response, every action on our part is a living out of what we believe It is our faith at work that we are the sum total of the choices that we make in the little things and the big things. God is faithful and he will do it. Uh, God's promise will work itself out in your personal and private life and God's promises will work themselves out in the world at large. God has not promised a problem-free life, but he has promised us The forgiveness of sins through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised us eternal dwellings in a perfect relationship with him that will last forever and ever because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Abraham stands as the father of faith and as an example of faith because he has come to know that the promise of God is better and more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. And what he had come to know and experience in his relationship with God is what drove his ambition and his choices and everything that he did in all of his life. For this is what Abram lived for. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. If we are children of Abram, then that promise is to us. We are heirs of that promise. And so let me ask you this morning, Are you looking forward to a city whose foundations, whose designer, whose builder is God himself? Because if you are, then when choices and decisions and tests come your way, you will be able to, like Abram, respond in faithful obedience and give glory to God And say, it was God who has done this thing. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, please would you give us grace to receive this word this morning. Please would you give us understanding to know what it means in our life today. And please, Lord, would you give us the will to put it into practice. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.